Can an engineer who hasn't had a biology course since high school really become a respected financial analyst in the medical device industry? Well, our guest for this episode has done just that. Listen along as Michael Lockman, who started his career as an aerospace engineer, helps us understand the pros and cons of following up an engineering degree with an MBA. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 63, Engineering MBA, September 4th, 2014. So Adam, do you have any interest in getting an MBA degree someday? Well, I've thought about this. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of interest in the the concept of business, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, the, the the management part sounds interesting, but I'm happy not working for the private sector. Right. Well, now as a, as a civil servant, there's got to be some degree in management for uh, you know government government employees. Yeah, it's it's a relatively rare program I've looked into. It's like a master's in public administration or something like that for uh, governmental and uh, nonprofits. Hmm. Okay. So the management part you like, but the business, eh, not so much. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a big profits and losses type. Uh, it just doesn't motivate me. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, I know that uh, from the survey we did at the beginning of the year that we had a number of listeners that said they would like us to kind of investigate the, uh, you know, the pros and cons of, of going after a master's degree, whether a, a master's in engineering or a master's in business administration. And so we thought we'd talk in this episode about going for the MBA degree, for going for a master's in business administration. And uh, many engineers work for private firms, industrial firms, and, and they're definitely in business. And so the question is always, what does this mean to my career track? Am I, if I get an MBA, do I have to go into management? If I don't get an MBA, am I prevented from going into management? Uh, what does that mean as far as uh, salary and responsibilities and prestige? And so there's a, there's a whole lot of issues that one has to sort of uh, consider when deciding to, to whether to get an MBA or not. So uh, we thought in this episode we'd, uh, we'd talk about that issue a little bit. So our guest for this episode is Michael Lockman, founder and president of IQ Research, a consulting firm that provides ophthalmic medical device manufacturers with market research, industry insights, and business guidance. Michael holds a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering from the University of Illinois, a master's degree in mechanical engineering from Stanford University, and most importantly for this episode, a master's of business administration from Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. Michael. Welcome to the Engineering Commons. Well, thank you, Jeff. Glad to be here. Michael, you and I know each other from uh, from way back. Yeah, we worked together, uh, I guess it was about 30 years ago now. It's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> of, course, of course, neither one of us is old enough for that to be true. No, of, of course not. And and neither one of us has the gray hairs to reveal that that age is really uh, passes by. <laughs> right, well, we have well, time-traveling co-hosts here. <laughs> <laughs> and guests. <laughs> Right. Well, we'll we'll eventually get into how we get uh, how we came to know each other on a, on the job. But uh, let's start with how you got interested in engineering. Well, I, you know, I guess probably like a a number of people of our generation. I was a child of the '60s and '70s, and growing up had great interest in the space program mm -hmm. and 
And I don't think it's a coincidence that that I ended up majoring in aerospace engineering uh, in college. Uh, you know, I think when I was in high school, I was I was told by a lot of people. I, I frankly didn't know a lot about engineering as a field, and was told by a lot of people that that's sort of a great field to go into if you're good in science and good in math. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having said that, you know, as I mentioned, I, it wasn't something I knew a lot about, and you know, I have a couple of I have four kids actually, uh, two that have graduated from college, one that's early in her college career and one that's still in high school. And I, I tell particularly my younger, uh, my younger kids that are in high school and early in college to really take advantage of, of, of a lot of the career information that's out there now on the internet that just frankly wasn't available when we were at that, at that point of choosing careers. Right. Um, so to some extent, I think, you know, my reasons for, for choosing aerospace engineering as a career you know, being largely driven by, you know, interest that I had had earlier in life uh, in the space program didn't necessarily translate, you know, the interest to the career choice um, didn't necessarily uh, translate had I known more about the the work itself. Was there a point that you decided that uh, being an aeronautical engineer wasn't specifically what you wanted to do? Or was that, did you just go out to industry and, and decide there were other fields you wanted to investigate? Well, yeah, I think my first job out of uh, out of college was was with uh, Lockheed Corporation in Sunnyvale, California, and I think it was fairly early in my work there that I realized that that aerospace engineering wasn't necessarily uh, the right uh, career path for me, and and it was at that time I, I had I had arrived at Lockheed with uh, with a uh, a graduate study program uh, in the works, so. So the plan was that I was going to work about three-quarter time at Lockheed and then go to school half-time at Stanford, mm-hmm. uh, working on my master's degree in aerospace engineering. And I started work in June in the summer, and literally by the time the fall quarter started in, in September, I had I had changed majors. Uh, I, had changed <laughs> out of, I had changed out of aerospace engineering and into the mechanical engineering design program, right? Um, really based on, on a belief which which turned out to, to be true. And I think it worked out very well based on a belief that, that getting a mechanical engineering degree would, would diversify the opportunities that I would have once I was, uh, once I was finished with the degree. And in particular, I, the, the design, uh, the engineering design program, which I know you also went through. So you're very familiar with that, right. uh, that, that program. Uh, I, I think that was a, that for me personally was a, was a very good choice. Uh, for where I was at that point in my career, because after four years of solving a lot of partial differential equations and doing a lot of theory and, and a lot of uh, very heavy math, uh, the opportunity to to get involved in a graduate program that was very much centered around the design process and and at the heart of it was a, a three-quarter long industry-sponsored hands-on design project, is, that, that turned out to be a great transition. Uh, right before I even really got started with the aerospace program. Right. Now, before we go too much further, though, I want to back up just what you said you were doing a lot of math. We run into so many engineers who say, well, I got, I got out into industry and I never used any of the math that they taught me. I never had to use calculus or differential equations. What were you doing at Lockheed that required this, uh, this knowledge of math? Well, I would, I would concur with that observation. And, and, you know, I did a lot of the work I did at Lockheed was was uh, programming a lot of a lot of uh, simulations of spacecraft dynamics, 
uh, at the time, Fortran, which I haven't kept up with computer coding, but I imagine that's quaint uh, <laughs> right now to say that I was a Fortran, a Fortran coder, a programmer. But I don't think I've heard anything but horror stories about Fortran. Yes. Um, and I like to say that I'm old enough that, that when I was an undergraduate, I was the last group of students at the University of Illinois that actually used punch cards in computer science. So I was about to make a punch card joke, and I, I was going to feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> and i actually remember using paper tape in high school so wow wow yeah how about that uh so uh, yeah i I, th- I think when i look back on my my engineering career and i was an engineer for seven years i would have to say that that there was an awful lot of math that that i learned in in uh in my engineering programs, particularly as an undergraduate, but even in, in the graduate work that I did at Stanford, because it wasn't all design. There was a lot of, there were still, still the, the, the more theoretical and mathematical, um, courses, uh, in, in the, in the program. Uh, I, I did feel like I used a lot of that. Now I, I'm sure that there are engineers who would have a different experience, uh, and would tell you that they use it all the time, but that wasn't my experience. Hmm. Okay. Well, and, and so when you decided that you wanted to change degree programs, you went into mechanical engineering. Was there any specific reason you went into the design program? Because there's more than one mechanical engineering program there at Stanford. Right. Well, I, I think, you know, somewhat, somewhat tactically or strategically, you know, I, I thought that would be, that, that would be a, a, a good choice. Uh, with regard to sort of maximizing the options that would be available to me uh, once I once I had graduated, but but I think even more than that, you know, I think when I when I went into engineering and uh, you know, originally, uh, you know, I've always been interested in art. You know, I I had you know been a cartoonist for my high school and college newspapers, and even at Stanford, I did I did uh, editorial cartoons and and took art classes all the way through high school and even took an art class at, at Stanford, which, uh, you know, the, the funny thing about that was all of my engineering friends thought I was taking an art class to get an easy, an easy A. And I don't think I had any class at Stanford where I worked harder than, <laughs> than in my art class with projects practically every evening. Right. Um, but to me, engineering, the idea of being an engineer involved designing things, physical, mechanical design. And the, the area where, where I kind of got pigeonholed into at Lockheed was very much a, it was a control system design group. So design wasn't pulling out a, you know, a CAD program or a piece of drafting paper and, and drawing something up. It was figuring out what numbers to plug into a control system algorithm to, to make everything stable. Right. So it wasn't, you know, the people I worked with thought it was design, and in one very real sense, it was design, but it wasn't what I had pictured. So, so the idea of of going into a graduate program where the focus would be on on you know mechanical design was very appealing to me at that point. Yeah. What was the state of CAD packages when you uh, started doing more mechanical design? You know, it was. I, I think it was pretty early days. I, I don't really. Uh, I. I think I, that that sort of buy in a lot of ways. Uh, I even in my even in my experience working at Baxter, mm-hmm. uh, I I wasn't at all hands on with with um, with CAD. So it was pretty early 
Uh, if you remember, 19, 1984, uh, which is when I graduated from, from Stanford, was the year that the, the Mac was introduced. You know, mm-hmm. so just to kind of reset, so reset the clock here, you know, um, you know, by the time I think CAD systems really became widely used, I was no longer a design engineer. So and, and would the expectation have been for a mechanical design professional that you would have had some familiarity with drafting or uh, the ability to describe or sketch out things? Yeah, I think that's accurate. And, and I had taken the sort of the basic engineering drawing classes in college. And, and because, you know, I've always been sort of graphically oriented anyway, that part of it wasn't, wasn't, uh, wasn't too challenging for me. Very cool. Yeah, Brian, just to give you an idea, my, uh, my first quarter at uh, Stanford, I took a CAD course. And in this CAD course, your job was to program the computer to do CAD. <laughs> <laughs> so, Today we learned how to create vector graphics. Right. So, so literally, the first assignment was they would give you, you know, coordinates for this cube, and you were to write the program that could, uh, you know, rotate and transform and translate this cube on the screen. So that was the CAD course at that time was to write your own CAD package. Hmm. Did uh, uh, was your interest in art and and drawing comics at all? Was there any utility for you there uh, in? Mechanical design? Hard to connect the dots directly. You know, I, I think, I, you know, I think the ability to sort of think in two dimensions or three dimensions and think graphically obviously helped. Um, but there are certainly a lot of people that I, I worked with over the years who were, who were perfectly capable and, and talented design engineers that didn't necessarily have illustration skills. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they're, I don't think one definitely relates to the other. I think for me, there was a little bit of a, a little bit of a synergy. So after you finished up at uh, Stanford in 1984, uh, you headed out into the world and where did you go? So then, uh, I, I went to Baxter healthcare in Chicago, which is where, where you and I worked together for, right. for a time. And, and uh, that was Baxter was the company that had sponsored my, my, master's design project uh, at Stanford. Mm-hmm. So that was really no coincidence. And part of the reason why why Baxter was a participant in that program was to recruit design engineers. Amazingly, that's how I ended up at Baxter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sensing a pattern. <laughs> so uh, when you arrived at uh, when you arrived at Baxter, what kind of work did they uh, did they ask you to do? So the, the original group that, that I was assigned to at Baxter was a, a manufacturing automation group that was, that was really targeting use of robotics in, in, in the manufacturing processes. And, and again, you know, we have to, we have to turn the clock back. Ro- robots then w- weren't what they are today. And it's hard to even, it's hard to even sort of get, wrap your mind around, you know, sort of the, the fact that, that we were at the early stages of these things. Um, but I think robotic technology was something that Baxter was, was was sort of wrestling with and trying to figure out where it belonged in the manufacturing process um, for products which were largely very high volume, um, small disposable medical devices. Mm-hmm. And and you know at the time I I think you know the manufacturing automation really was dominated by not not so much by robotics but more nuts and bolts 
you know, assembly systems and manufacturing systems that were hardwired and hard tooled to produce produce products in high volume. So after a relatively short time in the robotics group, uh, that that effort, I don't know if disbanded is the word, but it was certainly de-emphasized and and I made the decision at that point to switch uh, into into the the machine design manufacturing automation group, which was really you know I, I would say it was a step from from you know high tech approach to a lower tech approach right uh, to manufacturing. But again, from the standpoint of where I was career wise, you know I, I think I think the ability to sort of you know move away from theory and 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 move away from projects which might someday be funded to actually designing some automation systems that were going to end up on an actual factory floor mm-hmm. uh, was, was a good move for me. So I, I did that for probably a couple of years. Uh, and then uh, after I had been at, at Baxter for a couple of years, yeah, I, f- I felt desire to get closer to the product and closer to the customer. I felt that uh, for myself as a manufacturing engineer, I was a few steps removed from the customer and from the actual use of the product. Well, and you probably were. The, usually the marketing people don't like the engineers to get anywhere near a customer. <laughs> that's right. And and certainly not a manufacturing engineer and, and sometimes even hesitant to get a product development engineer. But <laughs> right. but for me the next the next logical step was to move into the product <laughs> development area. So so I, I applied for and and received uh, a, a, an intercompany um transfer to to a different division of Baxter, actually a division that had just been acquired a few months earlier in the merger with American Hospital Supply. Uh, and, and I moved into a, a, a group where I was developing implanted uh, products for neurosurgery. Okay. And and that turned out to be a very good transition for a couple of reasons. One is is it did get me closer to the customer uh, and closer to the, the end user and to the actual product. Uh, but the other the other nice thing for me personally about that move was it was a move from a very large corporate environment that, that where I worked, where you and I both worked, Jeff, at, uh, at, at one of Baxter's large corporate facilities um, into a, a division, a much smaller division that operated very much like a standalone company. So even though it was part of this large corporation, American Hospital Supply, when it was acquired by Baxter, had operated under a much more decentralized organization. So so even though I was still working for the same corporation, the the feel of it and the day to day experience was was very much like that of a small company. Um, even I, I could even draw parallels to uh, to the experience of of even working at an early stage or startup company, where I had I had uh, much more exposure to all of the functions and disciplines uh, of, of the in the organization, including marketing, you know, regulatory, quality assurance, uh, as well as exposure to senior management. Right. And, and when I got on the phone to uh, talk to you in, in setting up this interview, I had uh, recalled that uh, you and I would often go down for the uh, the coffee break mid-morning wearing three-piece suits, complete with a vest, which gives you an idea of the formality of, of sort of the corporate feel of Baxter at that point in time. We're talking That's right. Mad Men era here, just the time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, in fact, in, in fact, you know, later on after I left Baxter, I worked for Johnson and Johnson, and I used to hear stories about uh, not that not that many years before I joined J and J, where men who who left their office to even go down the hall to the washroom had to put their jacket on. <laughs> wow, that's formal. 
That's very formal. <laughs> I'm just imagining all you guys as hipsters. <laughs> this wasn't a social constraint. These were just the cool guys. Gotta look sharp. <laughs> See, I was going to ask if they got the bar in their office too, like on Mad Men. No, we didn't. We we didn't have the bar in the office, but I do. I do remember very early in my career. I would say this was even during the first couple of years when I worked at Lockheed. So this was this was back in in um, you know eighty two and eighty three. Occasionally, people would have a beer at lunchtime, mm-hmm. and I tell you, by even by the mid eighties, that at least where I was working, that had that had gone away. So I, I think a lot of those changes were happening. I remember early in my career when I was at when I was at Baxter, uh, both both in in Round Lake at the large corporate facility, and then and then at the, uh, the what was called the V Mueller facility, which was the the smaller company environment uh, that that I was mentioning. Uh, we non smokers had to deal with cigarette smokers in meetings right. in small in small rooms, and even if if you were in a cubicle and you had a heavy smoker sitting right across the cubicle wall from you you just had to deal with it very different environment oh yeah couldn't imagine that going down in today's world i've always wondered is it in the uh historical world of spoken in the office was it a faux pas to have a cigar yeah you didn't see many cigars i think just because of the volume yeah the volume of smoke (laughs) put out and the the smell of, of smoke so no pipes or cigars but the cigarettes were bad enough yeah so you've you've moved into this uh, this product development group at uh, a, a division, a group of uh, American Hospital Products, and so is there somewhere in here that you decide that you wanted to go pursue an MBA degree? Yeah, and it was really during that time. I, I think I think the the opportunity to to see how the the whole business operated and see what the various functions did. I actually got to spend quite a bit of time with with the, the marketing product manager that was re- responsible for my product line. And, and, you know, we worked very closely together in, in terms of new product strategy and, 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 uh, you know, working with our, our medical advisory board on, on, on new product concepts, as well as keeping the, the, the nuts and bolts of keeping the factory running on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, I think it was really during that time that, that I started to sense that, that I, I, I sort of saw the the marketing job as as more fun, or at least more suited to uh, what I would want to do than what I was doing as an engineer. So that was really the impetus to to pursue the MBA. I mean, it, it had been in the back of my mind for some time. I had actually taken the GMAT, which is the the qualifying exam for business school, five years earlier before I had left Stanford, mm-hmm. uh, just in case. I figured I should take the standardized test while I was still in student right. mode, and my brain was still. Uh, functioning in <laughs> right in, in that in that mode, uh, but I would also say that that you know having having worked for you know what was five years um, post college in a in a professional engineering environment before I started my business uh, business school uh, was, was really valuable. And I think a lot of the business schools, it may be, it may be a majority of them. I don't, I don't really know, but I know it was, it was true when, when I applied all of those years ago. And I think it's probably true with, with many of the business schools today, they require that you have at least a couple of years of, of work after college. And, and, uh, one of the, one of the things that I remember most about my time in business school were, was the number of aha moments that I had where, 
situations would come up in case studies um, or in in anything from from negotiating classes to operations management classes where where I would have this realization that oh okay so that's what was going on three years ago when <laughs> there was this organizational issue that had to be dealt with or when there was this this issue of justifying the the you know the the financial return for a, a new project or you know whatever it was I, I think there were I, I can't imagine having gotten as much out of business school, not having had those experiences in, in the real world uh, by the time I got there. Yeah, as an engineer, sometimes the decisions that get made several level, levels above you seem sort of random if you've not gone through the the training to understand how the business managers how the business managers are thinking. Right, and then sometimes they're still random, but <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes they're not. Right. And so uh, this process of, of taking an MBA, my recollection is I did it uh, at night, and I think you did it while you were working as well. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. And so how did you deal with the, the fact that you were working a, at least a 40 or 50 or 60 hour week and then heading off in the evenings and trying to get coursework done and, uh, you know, have a family and take care of, you know, other errands and that kind of stuff and, and make it all fit in the limited hours that one has in a week. Yeah, well, it was a real juggling act. There's no question. I mean, I, I had, I, I did the program over about three and a half to four years. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had our first child when I was about halfway through the program and had our second child shortly after uh, I finished the program. There were days when, when I literally headed out in the morning with with three meals in three bags <laughs> uh, one that I was going to eat in the car on the way to work the other a sack lunch to eat at work and then and then a third meal to eat in the car on my way to business school which was another another half hour further away from where I lived in downtown Chicago uh, and, and on a quarterly basis when, when it came time for class selection uh, as much as as much as anything else as much as the the, the Obviously, the degree requirements and graduation requirements come first, but one of the primary uh, factors that weighed into which which class or classes I would choose in a given quarter was looking at my expected travel schedule. If there were any any conferences that I was planning to attend, or if there was a sales meeting that I had to attend, or or uh, you know a, a, an operations meeting or a planning meeting, and figure out. For each night of the week, how many classes would I have to miss if I had a Monday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday class, right. and and trying to minimize that? So it was a it was a real juggling act. Now, that puts a strain on your family life too, as you're always running around too. How did you balance that? Uh, I guess there's no there's no sort of magic answer. I guess just a very understanding uh, wife and family, and and just keeping in mind that there was a there was <laughs> there was a method to the madness, or at least a a goal in mind, or a you know, a, a purpose to it. Yeah. Knowing it'll uh, pay off in the long run helps a lot. Right. Right. And, and I was enjoying the, I was enjoying the program. Frankly, if, if I hadn't been enjoying it, it would have been uh, probably unbearable. Oh, no. <laughs> but <laughs> hopefully you wouldn't subject yourself to all that if you didn't even like it. Exactly. And so I really enjoyed business school and, and, you know, in contrast, I know this is probably something that we're going to want to cover uh, in, in discussing the MBA, but in contrast to my personal experience, uh, in which I didn't, 
I didn't feel like I used a lot of the specific knowledge that I that I learned in engineering school uh, in my undergraduate, even portions of my graduate education. Uh, in that, a lot of that wasn't very applicable in my work. I found that that you know over the course of, of my my business business school curriculum, you know, the information that I learned uh, was was very applicable. And so it wasn't, it wasn't hard to be motivated to show up and pay attention and, and, and do the work. Yeah, yeah, it helps too if you can see, you know, this is how I'm going to use this out in the field or out in my job. It makes it easier to sit through it as opposed to some abstract concept where you can barely follow the math on the board. Absolutely. So any, any tips on cheap lunches for uh, people packing, you know, three bag lunches <laughs> a day? <laughs> well, what combination did you find worked the best? Boy, uh, you know, uh, sort of your basic sandwich and, and, and fruit. And, you know, a lot of times it was just some dry cereal in the morning. I know that sounds <laughs> exciting to all of you. Slice a banana in maybe if you're feeling fancy. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, sometimes you just want to go nuts, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Put the potato chips on the sandwich. Exactly. So, Michael, there are uh, a number of good business schools in the Chicago area. What made you decide on Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management? Well, I, I think the, the the two highest rated business schools in Chicago at that time and, uh, were and still are uh, the Kellogg School at Northwestern and the University of Chicago. And and you know at the time, I, I don't know if the if the lines have have blurred over the years. And I, I know that that educational philosophies adapt and 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 uh, change over the years. But at the time, it was a pretty clear distinction. University of Chicago was very much positioned around finance and, and it was very quantitative uh, in its orientation whereas Kellogg's specialty was marketing and and they made heavy use of the case study format that's that's often associated with Harvard Business School mm-hmm. and I, I think uh, you know Harvard cases were were part of the steady diet particularly in the marketing and strategy classes and you know having come from an engineering background you know the the quantitative route probably would have been easier in some ways because I think as a as an engineer you have a leg up over over uh, your your classmates who've come from some other disciplines you know with respect to the quantitative uh, parts of the coursework right. uh, but but for me it was the it was the marketing and case study aspect that I found interesting and I thought I would learn a lot more uh, in that sort of a format you know having having as we've discussed having had a steady diet of, of quant for for uh, most of my previous educational experience. Yeah. So were you, were you forced to choose an emphasis, uh, was, you know, marketing or account? I mean, traditionally I've heard finance, accounting, marketing, uh, or or management where you, were you forced to pick a particular path? Yeah. And, and yeah, I think my coursework was fairly diversified. I had a, I came out with a marketing major and a finance minor. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was, that was the path I chose, you know, there, you know, by the time you've taken all of the required coursework, there's probably more similarities than difference mm-hmm. differences in the in the course load. So, for someone who's thinking about going for an MBA, uh, for instance, when I uh, pursued my MBA, I was working here in the Indianapolis area, and there was there was just no way that uh, without going to say an executive program where you go on the weekends or go during a month during the summer or something, that I could be traveling to say Chicago, where these two top ten business schools were. So I went to the Kelly School of Business, which is associated with Indiana University, which is a fine <laughs> business school. 
but it's not a, I don't believe it's a top 10 program. It's a well-respected program, but it's not a top 10 program. Uh, and there may be others that are in other part, you know, other listeners who may be thinking about an MBA who simply can't get to a top 10 program or maybe even a top 20 or top 50 program. There's a local, you know, uh, local college that offers an MBA. So how does that enter into the decision making as to whether one should go pursue an MBA? Well, I think it, d- it depends to a great extent on, on what you're hoping to get out of it. So, you know, I, I think, you know, the reality is, is that there are some employers that that you know, really value that label and and that 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 uh, credential um, greatly. Uh, there are probably some large, some you know large Fortune fifty companies as well as management consulting firms and investment banks that will only interview at those top ten or top fifteen or top twenty business schools. Mm-hmm. So if if your your goal is to graduate and immediately go work for McKinsey and Company or or JP Morgan or, you know, and I'm just, I'm just throwing out those out there. I don't actually happen to know what their, what their hiring practices are as individual companies. But right. if that's, if, if that's the goal, then going to the local program or even the regional, uh, program, uh, that, that may, that may be a, a, you know, a perfectly fine place to get a business education, but doesn't have that top 20 status, then, you know, that, you know, may be some disappointment at the end of that process but but you know that aside uh, you know just that consideration aside I, I think you know as a, as a general piece of advice you know if if the goal if your goal is to is to you know either diversify your your career by learning more about accounting and finance and operation strategy and marketing and and, uh, and those types of things and it's going to take a business program to do it then you know, I, I think just just finding the best the best program that you can get into and that you can afford and that's that's you know geographically doable is is the way to go. Right. Have you seen a change in kind of um, not so the popularity of, but the expectations for an MBA during your career? Because I'm imagining they become more prevalent. Yeah, I don't know that I have a really good perspective on that. I haven't done a lot of hiring and and mm-hmm. organizational planning myself i i would I, I would guess that you're you're correct this is just conjecture now uh, i would i would guess that that you're correct on that so to some extent the mba as a as a uh, credential itself mm-hmm. uh, to qualify you for advancement w- within a company you know that that may be somewhat diluted at this point um but you know, sort of getting back to the you know the point I made uh, you know a you know a few minutes ago, if someone has a desire to to switch into a more a more you know business oriented career path, then it's still even though even though there may be there may be more MBAs out there, it's still probably a necessary step to go through. Mm-hmm. I mean. It- you you certainly make the case that it there's a lot of actionable information that you can get out of it. It's just it's a from my perspective in my generation it's it's uh, I I get I, I kind of look at it a little bit of a, a little bit of skew where you can definitely see the utility. I have a lot of friends that have gone into management, but I also have a lot of friends who got the MBA and then kind of sat there and went, "All right, where's my where's my MBA job?" <laughs> Who uh, 
thought it was just a ticket as opposed to just another tool tool set. Yeah, and and I think that's where you have to be careful. Yeah, and and that, that's where I, I I think you have to you have to get very specific about the company you're working for and and determining how much they value it, or you know even even maybe a little bit more broadly the industry that you're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know how how it how it's valued, and and the idea that that you know if you're an engineer and your goal is to move up the ranks in engineering management, you know it may or may not help uh, from a career standpoint. And then you start to get into some of the questions of of the return on investment. Um, I think then those are legitimate mm-hmm. questions to ask. One of the things that I found interesting was as I was finishing up my my career at Baxter and I was finishing up my MBA uh, program there. And, and at the time, I don't know what their policy is now. The company has, has changed a lot since I worked there, uh, through acquisitions and divestitures and more acquisitions and more divestitures. I think other than the logo and the name, I don't know that a whole lot remains, but <laughs> at the time, at the time, they were paying for a lot of graduate degrees at both Northwestern and the University of Chicago. And one of the things that I thought was, was rather interesting was I got uh, something of a, Something of a lecture, I would, I, I would say, from a from a human resources person at Baxter who wanted to make it very clear to me not to, not to expect that the world was going to open up for me once I finished this program, and that there were going to be special opportunities, or that it was going to really be much of a, much much of a help when it came to deciding on promotions, which I thought was rather odd because this was a major investment not only in myself but in a lot of other people that they were making at the time. And and what was so interesting about that as well was that at the same time the company was telling a lot of its its, you know, internal employees for whom they had paid a lot of money to get MBAs from two top ten schools, Kellogg and University of Chicago. Uh, the, the company was bringing in a lot of, of new grads from Harvard Business School. Uh, possibly because the consultants that were tight with upper management were telling them that that you know the real MBAs were coming from Harvard, so it was it was kind of baffling to me, and and the fact that that you know I I realized while I was at Baxter that I was probably going to maximize my career opportunities by leaving Baxter shortly after getting the degree I think is. It w- was a real issue. I don't know if the corporation ever ever dealt with it or faced up to it or realized that it was even a problem, but I, I, I think it was a pretty serious problem. Why advance uh, your, your employees that have all already shown loyalty to the company and have graduated from, uh, I'm looking at the current U.S. News and World Report rankings, uh, University of Chicago, which is ranked number four, or Kellogg, which is ranked number six, when you can go out and hire people from Harvard, which is ranked number one. Right, and and, and the, the irony was, uh, I think during the time I was at Kellogg, it was the first time that it had reached the number one ranking in the U.S. News um, uh, Business School rankings. Right. So, not that, not that I believe there's any, you know, a- anything to the you know slicing and dicing uh, the the rankings with that level of granularity and saying that well, someone who's graduated from the number one or two school is a is, is, is going to be a better employee and a more viable contributor than someone who's graduated from a number three or four or even nine or ten right. business school. I think that's taking the rankings way too seriously. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I think in this case, it wasn't so much about rankings as it was about culture. And I think it was, uh, uh, I think it, at the time it was the Bain Consulting Group that was very tight with, with upper management at Baxter. And I think a lot of, a lot of those folks were Harvard MBAs and they had a preference for Harvard MBAs. And I just thought it was kind of ironic that the company was paying very large amounts of money to educate their workforce. And then they were, they were not sort of taking advantage of, of this asset that they were investing in. Right. So it's a form of cronyism. Uh, yeah, I, I guess you could call it that. I don't think they would have said that. <laughs> well, it's not flattering, but. <laughs> but I think it is an indication of being realistic about what you expect out of an MBA program. Uh, yeah. Uh, Michael, you're going to a top 10 program did not guarantee that even the company you were already working for was interested in hiring, hiring you on or keeping you on to do those activities, uh, for which you had been trained. That's right. Uh, and, yeah. and if you want to go into the financial industry, pretty much they're looking for top 10. If you're not in the top 10, that they're not going to talk to you. Yeah. I, I think that's probably. Again, I don't have specific knowledge in that area, but I think there's that's that's probably in general a true statement. But on the other hand, you've made the case uh, quite well, I think, that if your interest is working for ABC Manufacturing Company, and you know they've got a hundred employees, you know fifty employees, a hundred employees, five thousand employees, whatever it happens to be, and you want to know more about what you know the language that that business managers talk, you know, use to talk to one another. Then an MBA, wherever it comes from, is a great way to sort of get inside that language and understand what the decision-making process is like. Yeah, I think so. And 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 just you know, even even things as mundane as accounting. Uh, I can't say I enjoyed any of the accounting classes I took. <laughs> uh, accounting, I always thought accounting was math. No, accounting is a bunch of rules that you have to memorize. Yeah, with how you how you record transactions. And how you follow the money through an organization. And it's very mundane uh, to me. There are some people who love it and think it's exciting. To me, it was mundane. But, you know, I I still use it all the time. You know, I'm going to be – I'm just about to start a project where I'm going to be helping a a, – an early-stage company figure out their their international commercialization strategy Mm -hmm. and and trying to decide whether whether they're still – they're still quite a ways away from FDA approval. They're trying to decide whether or not they're going to market their product outside the U.S. actively or selectively or not at all in the years uh, coming up to their FDA approval. And there's going to be financial modeling. There's going to be accounting um, in in sort of building that financial model. So you know, here it is, all these years later, you know, over 20 years later since I graduated from from that program, and you know, I'm still using, you know, in a, in a very real way, those nuts and bolts things that I learned in, in the accounting and finance classes that I took in business school. Right. And, and for those that are not real familiar with what's involved in a, an MBA program, let me just give a, a quick overview courtesy of the, uh, the fine uh, resource of uh, repository of information we know is Wikipedia. Pinnacle of human thought. <laughs> So uh, typically, an MBA program has some sort of core program that involves analytical, functional, and ethical components. So the analytical stuff, uh, accounting, economics, operations research, organizational behavior, economic policy. Uh, the functional uh, is accounting, 
business statistics, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, ethical is uh, business ethics, social responsibility, corporate governance. Uh, so they try to give you a, a, a sense of, of how to analyze the, the business, how to run the business, and what the ethical dilemmas are that you might run into as you're running the business, I suppose. Um, yeah, that's right. That's a good overview, and and it's a it's a mix of of some quantitative things. And as I said, as a as an engineer, you know those parts were pretty straightforward. Uh, and then there's the, kind of the softer sciences of organizational behavior and 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 marketing and business strategy. Uh, I, I think some of the classes that I personally found the most enjoyable were were uh, you know obviously the marketing classes. Um, but some of the strategic decision-making classes were interesting. Uh, some of those classes got into, you know, game theory and negotiating scenarios. And, and I found those interesting because it was all about looking at business situations from the other side mm-hmm. and, and how the other side might perceive your side and, and, you know, looking at, at those sorts of situations quantitatively, but also applying quantitative analysis to them. And, and again, you know, here we are, you know, 25 years later and, um, you know, one of the projects that, that I worked on last year that, that was particularly valuable for one of my clients was this is a, a small company that, you know, fairly early stage commercial ophthalmic technology company that, was preparing to negotiate with some of the larger companies in the field about a possible acquisition or possible partnership. And they wanted to be able to understand how these larger companies would view them, view their products as synergistic with their own product line. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so I created a financial model, you know, spreadsheets with, with uh, the ability to change the numbers and run different scenarios uh, which which allowed this small company to sort of put themselves in the shoes of this larger company and think about how their potential acquirers might be evaluating them and and you know from what I understand it's been a very valuable resource for them and there's there's very likely some deal that's going to come from that so so uh, you know again I I think you know, it's not hard for me to come up with examples where, where some of the things that I learned all those years ago in business school still have very real applications to what I'm doing today. Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a different mindset, I think, to go into things. Uh, as engineers, we often tackle a problem and we assume we're all going to work with the same, the same numbers and the same problem towards the same objective. And in business, it's a lot of cases where the two parties or multiple parties are looking at the same items and put completely different valuations and assume completely different use scenarios and have completely different ideas about what should be done. And that's the the fact that there's disagreement about the very core nature of the problem is kind of confusing, I think, to many engineers when they first encounter it. Yeah. And, and, you know, just even the basic act of forecasting, I had a colleague several years ago that, that uh, once told me, and, and it's really stuck with me. He said, the problem with forecasting is you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. Uh, and, you know, in, in analyzing business situations, that it really comes down to that all the time, that, that you never really know what's going to happen. And, and that a, a, lot of the, a lot of the analytics around business decisions 
have to do with, with running scenarios and taking your best guess at what might happen and, and you know, looking at the probabilities that certain things might happen. Um, and, you know, so there certainly is a quantitative aspect to it, but I would say more often than not, there's not a right answer at the end. There's, there's maybe a best answer or there's a defensible answer, but uh, there aren't a lot of, of right answers before the fact. Of course, after the fact, we can always look back and see what happened and we know what the right answer was, but that's a little help. Right. So I see here uh, about five years after you got your MBA, uh, you left the medical device industry and started working for an investment banking firm. That's right. Uh, I'm sure that was uh, quite the culture shock. Can you uh, talk to us a little bit about that? Well, it's, a, it's probably the biggest, uh, the biggest discontinuity in a career filled with with uh, random walks and discontinuities. Uh, <laughs> and you know, the only the only thing that that, that really uh, sort of connected the dots there was was in in the, in my move to an investment banking firm. The the position that I that I took was as as an analyst covering the medical device industry. So so I, I didn't leave the medical device industry, but obviously going from from a uh, a couple of very large companies that designed and manufactured and marketed medical products to a much smaller uh, professional services firm. At the time, the company that I went to work for was a company called Hambrick and Quist, which which actually became very well known out here in the in the Bay Area and around the country as, as one of the three or four uh, upstart investment banks on the West Coast that really funded a lot of the, the high-tech companies of the 80s and 90s involved in Apple's IPO and many other many other uh, high-profile fi- financings uh, back in the, in the high-tech world. The company was was acquired by Chase and then and then by J.P. Morgan um, in the in the early 2000s. Um, so it was a very different culture. For me, it was a very positive change because, you know, I had gotten to the point in my corporate career where, where I started to see myself more as a doer than a manager. And I think I enjoyed the doing more than the managing. And I think I was better at it. And, and in most corporations, advancement really happens by moving up and taking on bigger groups and, and more people and kind of building your empire in that way. And you know, so the ability to go to a professional services firm, you know, working as a, an analyst, where there wasn't a lot of hierarchy, and, and you could have success, you know, financial success and career success as an analyst, just by doing your job really well and being right more than than you're wrong, and and developing a following within the investment world, and and very much relying on your own work. Uh, those those aspects of it were all were all very uh, positive uh, for me. So I found that that to be a, a very good career change. So I, I can imagine a research analyst doing a bunch of different things in terms of a value. I'm, I'm assuming you're evaluating companies for potential investment or brokering sales. Would that be that be accurate? That, that's right. So so in the case uh, in in the case there are research analysts that work for what are called buy side firms, which are mm-hmm. portfolio management companies that, that buy stocks for portfolios. I was on what was called the sell side. Uh, initially, I did have a couple of positions later on, on the, on the, on the buy side, on the portfolio management side. But initially I went to the sell side and those are the firms that, 
that do the brokerage and do the investment banking and make, you know, buy, hold and sell ratings on stocks. So, so, you know, you really, you sort of job one is to really get to know your industry. Uh, and, and, you know, I always, I always told people that, that it was great coming from the medical device industry. I, I had had 12 years of experience in the industry by that point, but I don't know that I really needed all 12 of those years to, <laughs> to, to learn enough about the, uh, the medical device industry to cover it. And clearly there were, there were people that, that I've known over, there have been people that I've known over the years that have, that have covered industries successfully as an analyst that they never worked in, but just got to know it by working as an analyst and, and getting to know it that way. Uh, but the job itself consists of a lot of fundamental analysis, really get, getting to know what drives an industry and what the, what the levers are, uh, why some companies are more successful than others. Um, and, you know, the whole, the whole idea is researching enough about the companies to be able to pick winners and losers based on technology, uh, based on the quality of the management, their competitive position, uh, financial strength, etc. And to me, the, the hard part uh, about being an analyst was that final step of taking all of that fundamental analysis and then deciding whether a stock was overvalued or undervalued. Because then you, you start to leave the world of technology and management and which product is better. And you start to ver get very much in the world of psychology and trying to figure out how much of this good, this good news or bad news that you think that this, this view that you have of, of a particular company, trying to figure out how much of it is already out there and built into the stock price is, is, is something that I always found very challenging. You know, one of the things you learn in business school is the efficient market theory, which basically says that at any given time, all of the publicly known information about a stock is reflected in its stock price. So basically efficient market theory says that don't bother, says don't bother trying to pick stocks because you don't know any more than anyone else does. Obviously, if you're doing a lot of fundamental analysis on a company and attending conferences and talking to customers and really, you know, pouring over financial statements, I do think you can, you can get insights that other people uh, don't have, but there are still a lot of other very smart people out there doing similar kinds of work and trying to figure out how much of those expectations are already built in or not built in uh, becomes I, I would say much more art than science. So how much of it is uh, reading 10 Ks and evaluating balance sheets versus trying to build a model for a particular industry? You know, I always felt there, there are different approaches and, and me personally, I always spent more time on, on sort of the products and the technologies and trying to figure out mm -hmm which companies were more likely to be successful based on the products they were developing or the products they already had and going to conferences and trying to talk to doctors and spot shaky companies because something didn't quite add up on the balance sheet or there were warning signs in the margins. And, um, so I actually spent probably a little bit less time on that. There are other people who spend more time mm -hmm. on that, but all of the above, you know, those are all legitimate ways to try to get your arms around whether the whether the stock is, is is going to go up or down 
How did, how did being an engineer before uh, jumping into this industry uh, help you out? Was it the forming a mathematical model, or was it coming up with conclusions based on incomplete data, or did you see an edge you had with that engineering degree beforehand? You know, it's hard to say. Uh, I, it's a question I often ask myself, and, and you know, I, I think probably, you know, looking back on my engineering education and experience, I would say that, that you know, that problem-solving approach and the analytical approach that, that you get in your engineering education and working as an engineer probably has had a positive impact uh, on sort of the analytical thought process in everything I've done since uh, from, from being a, mm-hmm. an investment analyst and, and then in more recent years being a consultant. Having said that, it's a tough thing to quantify. I've always been kind of an analytical person and I probably would have been an an analytical person, whether or not I had gotten an engineering degree and worked as an engineer. So even if my background had been more financial and less engineering, you know, it's hard to say. Uh, The other thing is, is that, you know, I work in a field, you know, that I analyze the medical device industry and, and, you know, there's a fair amount of technology that you have to be comfortable with and, you know, when, when you're comparing two laser companies, for example, or two angioplasty companies, or you, know, you name it, two orthopedic companies, and and you're trying to make a call based on which product you think is going to be more successful in the market, then there certainly is a technical aspect to that. And I think in some sense, having the engineering background helped in that regard. Yeah, being able to see if they violated the conservation momentum or something based on the back of the envelope calculation. Exactly. But, you know, having, having said that, you know, I've now had a nearly 30 year career in the medical device industry and the last biology course I took was as a freshman in high school. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I do think that, you know, the, the, the domain knowledge, uh, I, I've, I've known successful biotech analysts that really didn't have a science background, but manage to learn enough science along the way to to be able to pick winners and losers in biotechnology as crazy as that sounds so so again you know trying to trying to get inside my own head and figure out you know how much of my ability to decide that you know this spinal implant is going to be more more successful than that spinal implant you know Mm -hmm. how much of that is because of my engineering background i don't know if i'm if i have enough personal uh, self-awareness and insight uh, <laughs> to answer that question. <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, that's an industry you can't DIY and tinker around in your garage and you can't take the spinal implant home and say, oh, yeah, that was really easy to install. <laughs> right. So, Michael, you cover the medical device industry as a whole uh, at large, but I understand you specialize in certain areas of the medical device industry. Yeah, so so uh, when I when I showed up at Hamburton Quist back in late '96, uh, having had a, a dozen years of experience in the medical device industry, but zero experience uh, on Wall Street, uh, you know, the first decision that I had to make, along with uh, the the other the other folks on the medical device team, was okay, pretty much a clean slate, other than than cardiovascular and orthopedics, which the other senior analyst had sort of grabbed for himself. <laughs> I could have, I, I really had a, a, a clean slate. I could have picked ophthalmology. I could have picked 
you know, orthopedic, they were not orthopedics, but uh, women's health. Um, there were some specialty cardiovascular areas that weren't uh, covered, urology. Uh, and, and, you know, like a lot of things, my, my foray into ophthalmology kind of happened as, you know, as much by accident as anything else. You know, very tac- tactically thinking, there were some, these, this was the early days of LASIK, and, and there were two or three LASIK um, companies that, at the time that I started working as an analyst, had, had, had the stocks had, had sort of risen, you know, greatly and then crashed it back down to earth. Right. And, and we, you know, we, we sort of tactically decided that, that ophthalmic surgery was an area that, you know, and, and LASIK in particular, laser vision correction was an area that I could get into and get my feet wet as an analyst and, and, and not do too much damage to myself or others. Right. By, <laughs> by, you know, recommending stocks that were at all time highs that then you know, crashed down to earth and then I would be bruised and bloodied, uh, my reputation tarnished forever. So I started, I started covering those companies and I just haven't really stopped since. Uh, I would say during the time I was an analyst, op- ophthalmic device companies probably ended up making up about half of my coverage areas in addition to eventually at, a, at a, the second firm I worked for on the cell side, I eventually did cover orthopedics and spine and some cardiology companies, uh, but was still able to cover ophthalmology uh, about, you know, the, about, you know, half of the covered companies um, that I covered were in that field. And, and as a consultant, um, a majority of my work has been in that field, leveraging the contacts that I made as an analyst. Right. And ophthalmology is that does that have to do with any part of the eye or certain characteristics of the eye? Well, there are certain there are certain fields that are more robust device markets within ophthalmology. So, so you know the biggest, the largest one being um, in ophthalmic surgery, cataract surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other there are other fields, there are other product segments within eye care that that I've spent a little bit of time in. You know, the contact lens business, which is more of an optometric. Um, product and, and, you know, spectacle lenses. Um, but my focus has been on, on you know, the cataract surgery market, uh, the refractive surgery market, which is in our procedures like LASIK, and then to a lesser extent, um, you know, the, the retina market, which is the retina is the part in the back of the eye that, that, that takes the light and translates it into an image to send to the brain. Uh, the retina market, you know, there's a, there is a, a, a pretty active medical device market, but the retina market is largely a pharmaceutical market. Mm-hmm. And in my co- in my coverage, first as an analyst and then as a as a consultant, you know, I have crossed over and I have done a number of projects that, that really relate more to pharmaceuticals than to medical devices. Right. And and again, no, nobody's going to ask me to to analyze their molecule for them and and let them know whether or not the molecule is going to cure retinal disease because I'm in no position to do that. Uh, but, you know, having said that, you know, I'm in as good a position as a lot of other folks to pour through clinical study outcomes and make sense of the clinical data and, you know, at least come to some conclusions about what works and what doesn't. Right. And certainly from a, from a business standpoint and a market opportunity standpoint, that's really more where I get involved is is in, in analyzing the, the potential market opportunity for, um, for for new products, whether they be devices or or pharmaceuticals. Right. 
So you're working for an investment, uh, would it be right to call it an investment banking firm? That's right. So, so I had, I, I worked at, at various times during my investment career for investment banking firms, um, which is where I started and where I, I finished. And then in between there, I worked for a couple of, of portfolio management firms. Okay. Sort of deciding which, which stocks to buy for the portfolio. Right. Now, at, at some point, you decided that you wanted to head out on your own. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So I had, I had been at my, my last firm, uh, firm called Think Equity Partners, which was a boutique investment bank that, uh, that was based out here in San Francisco, um, with a, a pretty big presence in Minneapolis as well. Uh, the firm folded up a couple of years ago and is no longer around. Um, and I was a partner in the firm. But I had been thinking for some time that that you know hanging out my shingle and and, and you know starting a, an independent consulting practice was something that I wanted to do and and you know at at as I mentioned you know the you know the there were a lot of things that I, I enjoyed about about my work as an analyst I think the fundamental you know, the fundamental research into companies and industries and picking winners and losers and figuring out, you know, what was going to work and what wasn't going to work uh, was the part that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. The part that always kind of left me cold. And it's not that I was bad at it, but I never felt like I was good at it. It never felt like I could really get my arms around it was the was the stock picking part, kind of the vagaries of the the market, where sometimes the stock would be up or down 5 or 10% for no reason other than it was up or down 5%, right. 10%. And, you know, the, the cliche is, well, there were more buyers than sellers. There were more sellers <laughs> than buyers. But, you know, I, I think in a lot of cases that was, that was true. And so, so the idea of, of starting a consulting practice where I could do the kind of fundamental analysis that I enjoyed doing, but not, not being tied to the, um, sort of the, the, the market hours, which are pretty brutal on the West Coast. Uh, the, the day often started at 5 a.m. out here, mm-hmm. which meant catching a 4.15 or 4.20 commuter train wow. um, to the office. Um, you know, so sort of <laughs> decoupling from from the day-to-day demands and, and sort of the stock-picking aspect was was what, you know, sort of in, inspired me to, to give it a try in, uh, in starting out my own consulting practice. Right. And so day one, you... You, uh, you say, okay, I'm, I'm on my own. What do you do on day one? You know, I think one of the, one of the good things about, about working as a research analyst is you, you, you get pretty good exposure at, at pretty high levels of management in the companies and in in industries that you cover. So, so I had had a pretty good network, uh, within the medical device industry of senior executives, uh, venture capitalists, private equity investors and the like. So, so day one, it's, it's getting back in touch with, with a lot of those, a lot of those people who were working at the companies that I covered and and some of the venture capitalists that I knew and saying, okay, this is what I'm doing now. I'm here to help. What can I, what can I help you with? And I was, I was fortunate. Uh, I, I was able to pretty well hit the ground running and, you know, got a couple of projects and, and, completed those successfully and, and it's been almost 10 years now and and you know I'm fortunate I've managed to stay pretty consistently busy largely through word of mouth um, just you know positive referrals from 
satisfied clients and, you know, putting myself out there as much as I can in terms of the attending conferences and, you know, whether they be ophthalmic industry conferences or medical device industry conferences, um, and, and just, and just, uh, sort of hand to hand combat. Right. And, and speaking of contacts, how, how would you rank the value of the contacts you make at, at, in business school versus the technical content that you learn in business school? Well, I think that's a question that I, I, I think different people will answer that differently. For me, I was in a part-time MBA program. So, you know, I made some friends in business school and, and there were people that I got to know through multiple classes. But in at least when I, the program I went through, we were all sort of going through at our own pace. So I didn't have a class group that I could really relate to, that I became really close to, that I spent two years in the trenches with. Right. And I, I think, I think people who go through a two year full-time MBA program probably graduate with a pretty strong network of contacts that they developed during that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it was almost entirely about the, the technical content as opposed to um, the network I developed right. um, during my time in business school. Michael, as we uh, start to wind the show down here, we're getting to be over our hour, uh, hour mark on this show. You know, if you had to add it all together, you know, the financial costs, the opportunity costs, the pros and the cons, and weigh it all together, um, do you think getting an MBA is worth it for an engineer? Uh, well, you know, I, I think it, 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 it really comes down to some of the specific questions and, and, you know, some of them we've, we've addressed. When you look at, at the cost of, of MBA programs, they've skyrocketed, like the cost of higher education in general. Uh, I, I just, I just looked up before our, uh, before our, our session uh, this evening that the, the two year cost for an MBA at, at, at Kellogg is now $180,000, $90,000 a year. Woo. They have a one-year MBA program for 120,000, and then just just for for another data point, I looked up UC Davis, which is which is a pretty highly highly regarded, um, I would say, you know, very strong regional program um, out here in California. I don't know where it stacks up in the national rankings. Um, it's not a top ten business school, but it's certainly you know, along with a couple of the other University of California programs, you know, considered a very reputable one. In-state, the two-year program, all in with, with room and board and everything, is about 120000 for in-state uh, residents, 140000 for out-of-state. So it's a significant investment. And I know that, 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 you know, we had talked offline before the call about the whether or not you add the opportunity cost. And, and, and if you if you – you know, one of the things that we learn in business school is when you're analyzing a business situation, you have to not only look at the, the upside uh, scenario, but you also have to consider the downside scenario and consider the opportunity cost. And two years of lost salary could be another hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars on top of that one hundred and twenty to one hundred and eighty thousand dollars. So so you know, it gets substantial. I, I think one one area that I would that where I would caution a little bit is, is, you know, getting too wrapped up in the opportunity cost because, you know, the numbers start to get so daunting that, that, you know, you can pretty much talk yourself out of it. Uh, it seems uh, pretty easy so even, far. <laughs> even if, even if it's the right thing. So I, I, I think, you know, the way I would, you know, recommend thinking about it is, is for someone who's, 
who's looking at an MBA only from the standpoint of, you know, I don't really, I, I don't really desire a career change, but I think that, you know, whether it's in terms of advancement or qualifying for higher pay, I think it'll have a positive return on investment. Then I think, you know, have added, I think, the, you know, 120 to 180,000 of out of pocket costs and then another, you know, whatever two years of salary is, you know, to include all of that in the analysis and, and then try to be realistic about, about, you know, what the upside might be over the, over the long term in, in compensation. And, you know, it may or may not make sense. I think if, if you're in a position as I was where I really wanted a career change and, and I really saw my career going more in the direction of marketing or consulting or business development, then getting an MBA was, was really a, I mean, it wasn't an option. Those things weren't going to happen for me. Even credential aside, I wasn't going to have the knowledge and ability to do those, to perform those functions and, and, and to do those jobs well without the business education. So, so, you know, there, I think, approach and you know fortunately I finished you know, I finished my program over 20 years ago so so you know costs the costs weren't the same then as they are today uh, you know higher education has has kind of gone through the roof so the math is tougher now but you know I think I think if if you're an engineer that that you know either wants to make a career change into something more on the business side or if you're working in a company or industry where where you know that an MBA is highly valued and there's a pretty clear path to, to a, you know, a higher compensation track that comes from it, then, then, you know, I, I think it's definitely something that, that's worth looking into. Yeah. And if you can get your company to help pay for it along the way too, then the numbers kind of weigh out in your favor even more. Absolutely. Well, Michael, we uh, certainly appreciate your willingness to join us this evening and uh, share with us some of your insights and knowledge and uh, inform us and our listeners about uh, the benefits of getting an MBA. All right. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. Yes. As someone who's, you know, maybe made more than a few uh, MBA jokes, possibly on this show, uh, this was definitely <laughs> eye-opening. And uh, I learned quite a bit about, you know, the possible opportunities that it brings to the table. So thank you for opening my eyes. Oh, well, uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks for coming on. <laughs> All right. Take care. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson. 